Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. I'm Myla Kim. And I'm Ed Gilbreth. In every episode, you'll hear from authors of color about the making of their books, as well as the challenges they had to overcome along the way. everyone, I'm Helen Lee, producer of the Every Voice Now podcast, and I'm thrilled at the chance to tell you a bit about today's featured guest. Vince Bontu is a professor of church history and Black church studies, and he's also the author of our book, A Multitude of All Peoples, Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity, which won an award of merit from Christianity Today. Now, as you think about the origins of the early church, you might be someone who, unconsciously or consciously, believes that Christianity had European origins and then eventually made its way around the world. But Vince upends those assumptions and presents a pretty compelling argument for why many of us have the story backwards and what the real roots are of the early church. And along the way in this conversation, I've got to tell you, Vince drops all kinds of fire in sharing his story of growing up in a black neighborhood, but attending a predominantly white evangelical church and college. And I think you will find this an eye-opening and fascinating conversation. I learned so much from Vince, and I'm sure you will too. So please enjoy this conversation between our hosts, Myla Kim and Ed Gilbert with Vince Bontu. We are excited to welcome Vince Bantu to the Every Voice Now podcast today. So thank you for joining us, Vince. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to be here. I want to start off with having you tell us a little bit about your personal backstory. So where did you grow up? Where do you live now? Or any other details you'd like to share about your family? Yeah, I, uh, I'm from St. Louis, uh, from the West Side, uh, born and raised. I moved away uh, when I went to college and I was gone for about 15 years. And in 2015, I came back home and, uh, you know, my wife and I started a church and we do ministry here in the neighborhood. And so, uh, yeah. Can you also share with us um, a little bit about your ethnic identity? So what is your ethnicity? What are some key moments in your ethnic journey that stand out to you, both positive and negative? We'd love to just kind of hear that story. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So I am Black, uh, African-American. My my father also is, is African-American uh, from St. Louis. My mother is white, so I'm biracial, come from a biracial uh, household and family. But, uh, you know, I grew up in a black neighborhood and just, you know, uh, we know how to one drop uh, mentality functions in this country. So always identified as black. My church that I grew up in uh, was actually a white church, a white evangelical church. And it was actually only about two miles away from my house. It might as well have been in a different world because St. Louis is a very like segregated city. The whole city is cut in half by one street and everything you know, on one side of that street is black and it's predominantly poor. And then straight straight to the south of that street is like all white and it's like, you know, very, very wealthy. rich. So it's like a racial and an economic divide. We're up about a mile north of that line, but my church was about a mile south of that line. So it was about two miles away, but it was like a you know different world altogether. And that, so I just grew up always associating Christianity with that culture because they used, the way I got connected to it is because they used to come into our neighborhood and try to cross the the famous divide of St. Louis racial divide and 
they would try to come in and minister and reach the, the poor black people. So my family was one of the ones that was kind of being ministered or reached out to who were helping us out, you know, financially and all that. So I kind of grew up in that church going over there and, and nobody else in my neighborhood went to church uh, at all. I mean, this was, uh, this was growing up in the eighties where there was you know, the, the gangs, the Crips and Bloods and all that. So nobody in my neighborhood was church. So I didn't, you know, uh, I didn't have a, a, an alternative context for, you know, people who looked like me, sounded like me or you know, act, acted like me, you know, following Jesus. The only, and the only people I knew that were following Jesus was, were these white folks. So that's yeah, just kind of what I associated Christianity with. So I always felt this tension, my ethnic and racial identity and who I identified with and, and what I identified Christianity to be. And I, I just felt like they were like kind of uh, opposite things. I just tried to have a foot in, in both worlds, so to speak, uh, in my neighborhood one way, but then in my church another. But then when the Lord called me to ministry when I was in high school, I, I felt like that was, okay, I need to take my walk more seriously now. So for me, that was like equivalent to rejecting my culture. So I felt like I needed to assimilate to kind of this white suburban evangelical culture. In or, for me, it was like in order to be a good, a good Christian, lives like and acts like. And so that was that was like when I about my senior year of high school, where I just went through this transformation and started really trying to move away from my culture that I actually identified with and trying to embrace this other culture that I identified as being a Christian culture. Hearing kind of your upbringing and your experience just adds so much more layers and depth to exactly what it is that you write about and the work that you're doing. So I'm excited for that conversation. But before we even get to the book, I'm curious, even about your writing journey, were you the type of person who always thought, I want to write a book? Or how did that even come to be? You know, I think within my first semester of college, that was actually when the Lord really kind of saved me uh, from a lot of colonized discipleship and self-hatred. Really, I kind of went and did a 180 <laughs> and and really went back into embracing my culture and my idea. Uh, and I would say, um, I would give a shout out to uh, my, my uncle who's transitioned uh, to to the next phase my uncle Richard Twist, uh, you know, he, he also, you know, wrote with IVP. He he came to speak, actually. I remember it was my first semester in college and, you know, he was dancing and drumming and talking about how, you know, uh, how we all, you know, God made us all uh, distinctly and beautifully, uh, not to surprise it. And, 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 and the Lord really spoke to me from Acts chapter 10, you know, when, when God told Peter to kill and eat, Peter said, I'm not touching anything that's unclean. And God told Peter, don't call anything unclean. And that's really what I felt the Lord was speaking to me, that I had called who I am and who my, and my community unclean. And, 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 and that's really what made me want to actually, again, bring the gospel in ways that are relevant to my community and my culture. And as much as I loved my experience in undergrad, I didn't really, it wasn't really training me to do ministry in my context, but it was training me to do ministry in, you know, again, that context of power that frames Christian discourse, you know, had been taught to try to assimilate into. So I ended up, my wife and I uh, ended up going to seminary in an urban context in the inner city of Boston. And the seminary was all focused on like preparing people to do ministry in the hood. And that was when the Lord really, you know, made it clear to me that he really wanted me to, to be a part of something like that, to go into academics and, and go into writing and studying and research uh, and teaching, but specifically for that context, like to, to basically you know, be a theologian for the hood and for the, you know, for the block. Uh, and that's, that's really where that whole thing came about. So Vince, I'm curious, what was the road to getting published like for you? Was it pretty easygoing or um, did you experience some, some turbulence along the way? I, I would say it was, a, it was a mixture of both, actually. Like, 
I, I got saved when I was like seven years old. And, but I didn't know what an evangelical was until I, you know, went to college when I was 19, like 12 years later. And I was like, Oh, are you evangelical? And I'm like, I don't know. What, what does that mean? You know? And so there's so much language and cultural capital that is wrapped up in evangelicalism and, and the academic world that I had access to. And when I, as soon as I went to like a prominent evangelical school, I just started getting opened up to that, to that world. And I gained access to that world. And I would say it's extremely hard for people from my community to publish and to break into that world or to gain access. I, you know, I didn't have good grades in high school. So I like barely got in by the skin of my teeth and I had people behind the scenes fighting for me. But, so, I mean, the, you know, life could have went a whole different direction, but to say that when I went to this prominent, you know, evangelical school, I met Dr. Sung Chan Ra, who came to speak there. And then I just ran up to him after he spoke in chapel and began a relationship and a connection. Now he's still one of my closest mentors. Today. And then after I finished my PhD, he specifically connected me with InterVarsity Press and was talking to me about publishing a book. So in that, that phase of it was actually very easy. <laughs> I knew somebody, he has published with this press. And so he just hooked a brother up. The first part of it, going back to adolescence and first breaking into this evangelical power table really hard and almost didn't happen. And so it just makes me think about all the other voices that are growing up in the barrio, that are growing up in the hood, that are growing up in the park or on the res, and also have a lot to say and that just don't have access to these, these power tables that I do and that we do. Those relationships are important, but it's a challenge to us as well as publishers, as folks working in the industry to be more intentional and working harder at identifying where the next great scholars and writers are. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about A Multitude of All Peoples, your book. The topic you are tackling is, I quote, the historical roots of the Western cultural captivity of the church and the development of early non-Western expressions of Christianity. Can you unpack that for us? Just sort of give us a, an accessible rundown of what you're doing in the book. When I was in college, you know, I learned in church history, but it was really just Western white church history or Western white theology, but it's being presented as this normative, global, all thing. And then people of color get like kind of tacked on at the end of like being these add-ons or these afterthoughts. But on the flip side, you know, when, again, when I was in seminary and I was in this urban kind of context, you know, I took this focused study on African church history and actually, it was actually a trip in Egypt. And that was the first time I learned about how the church was in India or Egypt or Ethiopia. Like even, you know, I just, I just always, I was, it was actually, it was interesting because I was on a, uh, this, this study tour was a group of, of black, you know, seminarians and pastors, uh, actually multi-ethnic, very culturally diverse, uh, but most people was black. And, and it was really an emotional experience because all of us, myself included, were, you know, shocked to find out that Christianity was actually in Africa, uh, all over Africa, long before the mentality is often that, well, Christianity came into uh, African and African diasporic societies through slavery and colonialism. And, it, and, and so it was really empowering to learn that, but also even to learn about the early church in Asia and uh, on the Silk Road. Like, I was like, man, this is great. And nobody talks about this. When I learned about the ancient part of it, that made me want to get to the bottom of like, well, where did that come from? Like, how did we point? Because clearly that's not the picture in scripture. So how did we get from scripture to the, the hot mess of 2016, you know, and 2020? Like, how, what happened? <laughs> uh, 
or slave ships or Jim Crow or, you know, residential schools, all the all the hot messes, you know, crusades that have happened. How do we get from scripture to all that? Uh, that's really the heart of the first part of the book, but really the core of it. And I think the more important part is the unsung heroes that are really in the core of the book of, of showing that, again, Christianity has been in these other places as well. And I think if we can tell those stories, then also begin to understand that even as we try to decolonize and decenter uh, the, the kind of Western normative narrative of Christianity, that actually that's, that's, uh, that's been going on since day one. In fact, there's not only, you know, there's not only examples of decolonial theology, but there's actually a colonial theology. There's, there's theology that is developed in context of color that haven't known colonialism, that, that precede the colonial of Christianity, so that everything's not only a, an afterthought or even a reaction to hegemonic Christianity, but Christianity that's existed free of dominating Christianity. Why do you think so many of us in North America, so many North American Christians, remain ignorant about this history? Why is it so buried you know, obviously, like white supremacy, I think, is the most important and first answer that, that we still live in a society that is white supremacist, that whites control most aspects of society, government, culture, education, academia. And in some ways, it's even worse now than it was maybe in segregation my dad grew up in or, you know, in other generations. Now it's more like subversive and indirect. There, but I mean, academia still runs in a Western normative kind of way. I mean, even when we think about like, I mean, I'm an ancient historian, even when you think about the classics, right? And the great literatures in colleges and all these things, like still this mentality that like the Western, whether it's ancient or medieval or modern, you know, that the, the classics are all kind of in the Western context. So we, we have a pedagogy and a curriculum that's wet, that's centered around the West and whiteness. And again, people of color are just kind of like, you know, the orbiting the white center of all things. And I think that that's a lot of people, even us as people of color are sometimes trained to, to measure our success by the degree to which we can acclimate to and achieve things in white institutions, uh, rather than just understanding who we are in and of ourselves. And that's another reason why I'm really interested in history, African and Asian history, that's not responding to white but it actually precedes it uh, and exists in many ways apart from it. There's a lot, a lot there to continue to, to unpack. But first, we need to take a quick break. But when we return, Vince will continue on this, this fascinating subject, and he will actually do a reading for us and talk more about the writing process as well. So stay tuned, and thanks for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast. Truth Table and University Press. Get in the Word with Truth Table, a daily audio Bible podcast read by Akemini Uwan and Dr. Christina Edmondson of Truth's Table. Join us each day as we get in the Word. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast player. Welcome back to the Every Voice Now podcast. I'm Ed Gilbreth, and it's time for our Behind the Word segment, where Vince will be reading a passage from his book, A Multitude of Peoples, and then we'll find out a little bit more about what went on behind the scenes of writing that passage. 
Vince, what will you be reading for us today? So starting on page two in the first um, kind of full paragraph, it says, uh, contemporary missiology has often advanced the church's cultural self-understanding by highlighting the unprecedented recorded numbers of Christians in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The quote, typical Christian of the 21st century is not a white man, but an African woman. However, the modern global church has often presented as emerging from centuries of a Western Christian majority. Lamansani provides another example of this Westernized Christian narrative, and he says, in time, Christianity expanded from Europe into Asia and Africa, among other places, and was able to break out of its Western cultural confinement by repeating the process by which the church's missionary center shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch and beyond. The dominant concept of Christian history is now that Christianity went from its multicultural beginnings in first century Palestine across a Western trajectory of European and North American captivity to only now reflect global diversity. It is this common misconception that requires further conversation. Many contemporary missiologists and church historians would have us believe that Christianity came into Africa and Asia from Europe when the reality is quite the opposite in several significant respects. Christianity is not becoming a global religion. It has always been a global religion. Egypt was home to many of the earliest biblical manuscripts and had an organized ecclesiastical hierarchy no later than the late second century. Ethiopia became a predominantly Christian nation in the fourth century and along with Nubia functioned under the ecclesiastical hierarchy of Egypt. Syriac-speaking Christian merchants brought Christianity along the Silk Road to the Persian Empire in the early 3rd century, to Central Asia in the mid-4th century, and as far east as China in the mid-6th century. While it is possible that the Apostle Thomas brought the gospel to India in the 1st century, Syriac-speaking Christians reported missionary activity to India no later than the late 3rd century. These traditions spread rapidly across the continents of Africa and Asia and took on indigenous forms at a time when the majority of Northern and Western Europe practiced pagan religion. Despite the persisting association of the Christian faith with Western culture and whiteness, Christianity has always been a global religion that spread from Jerusalem in every direction. Vince, can you tell us what your experience was writing this portion? Did it just flow or was it a struggle to write this portion of the book? Yeah, it was pretty flowing. I, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I went to seminary in a place where I was able to connect theological content with my cultural context and my community and also my faith. But after that, you know, I felt called to go into get a doctorate. And in some ways it was like, it was a great experience, but other ways it was a little isolating because I was one of the only people of color, certainly the only black uh, person in my, in my department. Uh, but now, as a scholar, I'm one of the only African Americans in the whole field of early Christianity. I don't, I don't really know of one other <laughs> uh, that focuses on the early church. So even going to academic conferences and publishing, and there's a big disconnect, you know, between people, the guild of early Christian scholars. So writing the book was, it was almost like the first time I was able to finally connect the field of study that I'm interested in, which is early African Christianity and Asia, early Asian Christianity but also connecting that with the missiological, cultural perspective. I can be my full self uh, in this book, really, is, is kind of, um, you know, what it felt like. Because a lot of the multi-ethnic kind of believers that I most resonate with, and in terms of values, theologically, politically, socially, all that kind of stuff, hardly none of them are interested in early Christianity. On the flip side, most people, again, in the Guild, who are really interested in early Christianity, don't share my same, again, cultural and theological 
kind of values. And so it feels kind of like sometimes like I'm the only one trying to bridge that gap. And so, again, the book gave the opportunity to really try to, to do that. You know, something about being probably one of the pioneers or the only one in your area of interest is it takes a lot of courage to say hard things. You can't look to your left and right and say, oh, they'll get it. I mean, you make bold statements like too many people, both Christians and non-Christians, still perceive Christianity as a white man's religion. It's a pretty strong, true statement, but it's a strong and bold statement. So what are the reactions that you've gotten to your thesis statement? How have people received that? It's been pretty positive for the most part maybe from the black Christian side, which is probably, you know, my, my largest audience or my most direct audience and that I engage with the most. Um, there's been a lot of uh, really just kind of encouragement and, you know, just a lot of like, man, I didn't know that. That's amazing. And it's, I think it's been affirming to see how our ancestors have been a part of the Christian story from day one. And uh, even pre, again, even preceding a lot of European context. So it's been really uh, encouraging. I, I think, um, in terms of negative pushback, uh, I haven't had a whole lot of that directly. One of my other Black audiences that I really try to speak to is like Black non-Christian religious communities. Again, I mean, I'm a, I consider myself a hood theologian. I'm a theologian for the hood and for the block. That's another way I try to decolonize my scholarship is, again, I'm, I'm just not really interested in speaking to or answering questions that are predominantly that are white questions. CRT is like everyone's talking about it now. And to me, that's a white question, like even to, you know, to have an issue. I'm like, I don't, I have no interest whatsoever in using my mental or time energy trying to convince people that systemic racism exists. But for me, I'm interested in more like hood questions, like are black people Hebrews or, you know, is Christianity a copy of, of you know, Egyptian religion? Or these are questions, again, that in the dominant culture that doesn't even ask. So that's another way we can decolonize, right? Is like, who are we speaking to and what questions are we seeking to ask? That's another demographic, like black Hebrew Israelites, comedic. Uh, Orthodox and or conscious community, uh, you know, uh, five percenters, like all these different kind of black non-Christian and even anti-Christian religious communities are another audience that I definitely get a lot of pushback from and things like that. So that's I, I would say that's been, you know, where a lot of the pushback has been has been from uh, for the most part. Help me, though, as a as a person and others out there who are sort of in the business of engaging with with the white community on these topics. How do you push through? How do you persevere? What advice would you have for those who are in a context where they're presenting these ideas to white community that uh, is resistant oftentimes? I don't think y'all are going to like my advice. <laughs> uh, and, I, and feel free to disregard it. But again, I, I'm just trying to be truthful and, and true to what I feel the Lord has laid in my heart. And going with the analogy I just used, I honestly truly think the most loving thing we can do for white evangelicals at this point is to just leave it alone. Honestly, God has sent them so many prophets that they have literally killed. <laughs> uh, and I feel like, honestly, the most loving thing to do is to just, for pe um, you know, people of color or even like white allies that really want to see justice done, we, we waste so much time trying to convince and labor with these people who say they love Jesus and hold so much power and yet seem very uninterested in actually leveraging that power in the support and in the empowerment of those uh, who are on the margins. We just waste so much time trying. To, and, I, and I think we think, oh, but if we can get them to change, there's so much great things that can be done and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, but we just, we, we literally spend careers and years trying to get that to happen. And again, I'm not trying to, if God, look, if God tells somebody to do something, yes, obey what the Lord said. But I just have this sneaky suspicion that I just wonder 
are, is God actually really calling all of us to keep laboring with white evangelical? They have more money, they have more clout, they have more power that we're all looking for. We think careful, you know, careful. You know, hey, I'm, <laughs> 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 do we think, or do we think like nothing can really happen transformatively if, if they're not on board? I'm like, they've been told. Like, it's not a lack of love, it's not an apathy, but like they've been told. But again, I'm I'm seeing so many other spaces in the margins that need, and this is this is a kind of like maybe like off point but i just have a thing i just have a side kind of passion for people of color who kind of walk the bridges who are the bridges and who walk the line between like our communities of origin and like dominant white evangelical space that many of us have access to i just see so many of us giving so much of our time and energy to trying to transform the white evangelical center and oftentimes we don't have any energy left over for our community to encourage people pour into our communities of origin, those places in the margins. And when people with power want to get involved in that and not need to be in charge and not need to be running it and not need to have their institution, you know, uh, their flag waving, then yes, there's a place for it. You know, there's like, like the rich man who talked to Jesus, like, Hey, come on, let's, let's do it. But you gotta, you know, you gotta leave what you got to follow me. And when there's a, when there's a lack of desire to do that there, you know, Jesus doesn't go chase after that dude. You know, he's not like, wait, but I need your funding <laughs> for my ministry. It's really, it's really hard for rich man to enter heaven, but what was possible, what's impossible with humans is possible with God. So anyway, that's. Man, well, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Vince and find out more about his personal writing habits and quirks. And then you'll also find a way to get a special discount on his book, A Multitude of People. So stay tuned. And thanks for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast. Have you heard about the new monthly book club from InterVarsity Press? IVP Book Drop is the perfect club for readers who want to grow spiritually, hear from diverse voices, and start powerful conversations on today's most important cultural topics. Plus, it's only $9.99 each month. When you join IVP Book Drop, you'll receive our best-selling title, Reading While Black, by Issa McCauley, as your very first book. And after that, you'll continue to receive one curated book a month for just $9.99. As a listener of the Every Voice Now podcast, you already know many of the diverse authors featured, like Drew Jackson, Andy Samakali, and you'll meet even more authors like them each month. IVP Book Drop is the easiest and most affordable way to receive the latest IVP books from your favorite authors. To learn more and join today for only $9.99, visit ivpress.com slash evn22. That's ivpress.com slash EVN22. Save big on books worth talking about by signing up for IVP Book Drop today. You're listening to the Every Voice Now podcast, and I'm Myla Kim. Today, we've been talking with Vince Bantu, author of A Multitude of Peoples. And keep listening to find out how you can get a special 40% discount on this book at ivpress.com. But first, let's find out a little bit more about your writing habits and quirks, Vince. And so we'd like to kind of get an inside view on how you actually go about the discipline of writing. What are you like when you sit down and write? Do you sit down and write? Are you focused? Are you all over the place? What is your whole process of writing? I guess the first thing that I think is important is like just having time for it that's scheduled in and that I just protect my dying breath. You know, there's so many different uh, meetings and opportunities that come up, but I just treat my writing time like it's a meeting. 
Uh, so I just like block it off. I'm like, no, I'm, I, I have to write. And so, cause otherwise things will always come up and, and things will always snatch away. I mean, it's almost like having time with the Lord that you want to protect that and really just Jesus and having time to be in the word. It's, you know, like not as important as that, but in a similar way, like want to, you know, just block off time to write and not let it get snatched up. Uh, so I personally, I, and I, I do it in four hour chunks. So I have a, I, I do four hours a day of writing um, and every week, like on Monday through Friday. Um, well, I'm doing that right now because I'm on sabbatical for a year. Uh, but when I'm not on sabbatical and I have to teach, I try to do at least three days a week where I'm doing three, four hour chunks a week of writing. Uh, but now I'm on sabbatical, so I can actually get to do it every day, uh, Monday through Friday. Because to me, four hours is like enough to where I really could get some good stuff written. Because, you know, an hour, 30 minutes, that's not enough because you're just getting into it, right? Personally, again, things might be different for different people, but I feel like maybe six, eight, seven, eight hours of writing, that's a lot. And I feel like it drain your brain. And so I just, it's just better to have enough. For me, four hours is a, a, a good amount of time, you know, to get some good writing in. And I'm really in it. I'm just, my mind is just absorbed in it. And, you know, I turn off the phone, I, I flip it over. I don't look at the phone and, you know, close, you know, don't have my email open. And I'm just, I'm just in writing world. And some people, you know, my wife, she, she cannot write in the house. She needs to be at a cafe or a library. But I can't write, not in the house. I love <laughs> <laughs> I don't use the office. I don't use library. I mean, if I have to go to get some stuff, but I, when I go to the library, I'm getting what I need and I'm getting out of there. I love having my shoes off and being yeah. in sweatpants and I can lay on my bed if I want to for a minute. And, you know, I always have music on like, you know, some people can't do that, but I always have some, some music on. I find that sometimes people fall into a writing perfectionism where it's like, overthinking every sentence and every word, but then like they spend how, however many hours and there's like a sentence on the page or it reminds me of that Fresh Prince episode where like the whole episode, uh, Will kept reading, welcome to the exciting world of chemistry. Sometimes I feel like we can get in that funk, you know, and I just, I just, I just think for a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people like me, there's just something about when you produce words and put them on the paper um, and they're there. Uh, and yeah, they're imperfect. Um, you know, can you can shape them later, but there's just I think it can motivate you and get and it'll generate more ideas. I'm curious about the writing of this book. Was there anything that happened while you were working on it that you will never forget? Either a moment of personal insight or just something special that stands out to you in the experience of writing the book? When I went to the monastery in Dongola, which was the capital of Nubia in the early medieval period. I went into this monastery and saw this painting that just struck me and I had never heard of before. I hadn't seen anything published about it, but it was a painting of like these sub-Saharan African people wearing like pretty typical looking African animal masks and, and they were worshiping Jesus. And I, that really struck me. And this painting was from like around the uh, you know 10th or 11th century. So again, you know, long time ago. And I just felt like it was just a powerful picture of how, again, how the gospel was spreading all throughout African Asia, not only in some of these areas that we have really good documented evidence for, but there's also these hints that we get of things like that, of how Christianity even spread in other places that we might not have as much evidence to know about, but how the gospel actually continued to spread because this painting kind of indicated Christianity from the Nile Valley, which we it's well-documented, but even into other sub-Saharan African people groups to the West and to the South. And so I just got so struck by that image. And it's actually really been kind of... Um, like really fueling my current research, which is mainly focusing on the spread of Christianity from North and East Africa into the rest of the continent. It just felt providential that I, I got to see this while I was working on the book. And then the public yeah. reached out and talked about what they wanted to be on the cover. So I was like, Ooh, I want that to be on the cover. 
so that's the that's the painting that uh, the picture that you see there on the cover. Tell me what advice and encouragement would you have for up and coming academic authors of color about the journey of to getting published? The most important thing is to have a message that's from the Lord, really advances his kingdom and gives glory uh, and is something that is uniquely something that he has wanted to communicate that he can only communicate through you or experiences and through your knowledge and, and all of that. Um, and, uh, and that, and that, and let that really be the guiding, you know, principle, um, is knowing what you want to say to the world. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, um, after that, just going back to the earlier, uh, conversation I was having is I just want to people to please write to people of color. It's, it's cool to have people of color who are authors, but I would also, I just want to encourage people to write towards that audience also, because again, I think we've had enough books that are aimed towards white people, even written by people of color. But a lot of times when I'm reading books about black theology or the black experience, a lot of times when I'm reading it, I can tell that the person is really writing towards white people and trying to in with them to get certain things. And a lot of times I'm not feeling like they're actually speaking directly to my community. Uh, and so that's, that's just what I would encourage people to do. Again, I mean, you know, if the Lord puts someone on somebody's heart and that needs to be said again, that hasn't already been said, I, I, I doubt that that's the case, that if there isn't anything that needs to be said to the dominant culture that hasn't already been written. But, you know, yeah, do that if, uh, if there's something out there. But I just want to encourage more people of color to please write towards audiences of color and address that people of color have that oftentimes don't get brought into the dominant um, is, uh, yeah, another, uh, yeah, just another thing I would uh, suggest. Well, Vince, we've come to the end of our time together, but before we go, we want to give you a few moments to share with our listeners any upcoming special projects you have going on and also where people might be able to connect with you. Oh, definitely. Um, you can connect with me. You know, I'm on social media, on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I don't really check it that much, but um, but yeah, definitely feel free. And also I would uh, say another African-American school that I work with is the Meacham School of Hymenode. Uh, we actually also have a, an academic a theological society of black scholars uh, called Society of Gospel Hymenode. Uh, and we have an annual meeting that we just had actually a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and we also have an, uh, a black theological journal, which uh, just came out uh, with Urban Ministries International. Uh, that's another thing that I want to, uh, I don't want to <laughs> get in trouble for either. But I would also say even like black authors or authors of color publish with presses of color as well. I find black owned, Asian owned, Hispanic owned, native owned. Um, you know, presses and publish with them as well. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've enjoyed publishing with IVP. I'm actually uh, talking about upcoming projects. I'm actually working on a book project, not two book projects, actually, with the University of California Press. So you can be looking out for those. This this translation project that we're working on with the University of California Press that I'm editing is going to be dozens and dozens of Chinese, Arabic, Armenian, Coptic, Ethiopian, Persian, Christian texts, pre-colonial, colonial, uh, but in English translation. So I love doing things like that with dominant, with PWI presses and things like that. But also I'm, you know, uh, want to shout out a more recent thing that just came out is going back to our gospel hymenote society is we actually just had our first journal come out or, or an urban ministries international press. I give a shout out to them. One of the, probably the largest black Christian publisher in the country. So definitely want to encourage uh, all people and, and, and uh, to really support the work that they are doing and other presses of color. It's got like over a dozen academic journals from biblical studies, theological studies, church history, practical theology from black graduate students and scholars from across the country, as well as some book reviews. And so really, the I think it's one of the only black theological journals uh, in the country uh, and 
to buy black press. So that's that's a, that's a, that's probably the most off the press, hot off the press thing that I've done recently. So I uh, definitely want to impre- uh, plug that as well. Did I hear that you're also working on a podcast? Oh, that's right. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, you know, the Jude 3 project is a is a ministry that that is I really work closely with. And um, and yeah, that, that's I've done a lot of work with them in the past. But yeah, we're actually coming out with a kind of a specialized podcast that focuses on questions about early African Christianity. And again, that's I think Jude 3 Project is a is another great example of, again, just talking about an organization that's black owned, that's black run, and it addresses black questions. And, and that's one of them. Uh, so yeah, that'll be coming out. Uh, it's called the Bisrot, which is actually an Ethiopian, ancient Ethiopic word for the gospel. Uh, so it's Bisrot uh, podcast, and yeah, that should be coming out pretty soon. Well, thank you, Vince. Um, and to our listeners, we wanted to share with you all how you can find a multitude of peoples at everyvoicenow.com. Um, if you use the code EVN40, you can get 40% off and free U.S. shipping. So visit our site to get a great deal on this insightful book. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast, brought to you by IVP. Our producer is Helen Lee, and our sound engineer is Jonathan Clausen. If you are enjoying our show, please share about it with your friends. We'd be grateful for your reviews and recommendations on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you directly anytime. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Every Voice Now. Or you can email us with your comments, questions, or suggestions at evn at ivpress.com. And join us next time for another inspiring episode of Every Voice Now. Every Voice Now.